Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning. Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Amen. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? You ready for the freeze? And the snow? Yeah, it's not coming. Sorry. <laughs> but it's going to be cold. Yeah, yeah, good to be here. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will dive in. Oh, Father God, thank you that we were able to gather and worship together each Sunday. God, we know that there are places in the world where this is not easy, it's not safe, where people can't gather. So I pray that we would not take this for granted. And God, I pray that this morning you would show us your call on our lives as the church how we are to live together as your people and that you would empower us by your spirit to walk in faithfulness to that call. God, you have redeemed us through your son and united us as your people. Let the way that we live together proclaim to the world the glory of our God. Amen. All right, so we are continuing today in our series on the mission and vision of Christ Church Kingwood, and this morning we are talking about gospel-centered community, and this is actually something that you guys are awesome at. You're awesome. The amount of serving and caring, listening and helping one another that you all do is staggering. It is this beautiful picture of gospel-centered community at work, and it is such a joy to be a part of this. But what I want you all to know is that living like this is abnormal, right? You are a weird bunch of people because our flesh is inherently about self-advancement and self-preservation. So when we live lives actively poured out for God and for others, the world will take notice. And even as a church, there's this temptation towards self-advancement, a temptation to look successful, to use metrics of growth and money to convince ourselves that our church is healthy and strong. But those kind of metrics don't tell us everything we need to know about a community. Because the interesting thing about gospel-centered community, or what we could call kingdom life, is that it's not something that can be measured very easily. It doesn't fit well on a spreadsheet. We can't count it and give end-of-the-year stats. It can only be lived and experienced as the gospel compels us to look to the needs of others and to care for those with whom God has united us. And it's always something we can grow in. You are awesome and could be awesome-er. So that's the goal. And just like we talked about last week that God created us for worship, 
God also created us for community. He created us for relationships. Not only that, but true gospel-centered worship always compels us towards the community of faith. And this is important for us to understand because there is a growing trend in our culture of people who say that they are Christians while actively avoiding engagement in the body of Christ. Right? And it's typically the product of having been burned by the church, right? Everyone has a story which most of us can relate to. But to claim Christ and to avoid the body of Christ is the opposite of the life of faith described in Scripture. True worship will always move us towards engagement in the body of Christ. Because when we trust in Jesus, the promise of the gospel is that we are united with God and with other believers. We become part of an eternal family. And this community of faith, this eternal family, is one of the primary means God has given us for both encouragement and sanctification. So we can't say that we worship and trust God with all our hearts and then neglect one of the primary means by which he shapes and grows us. That would be absurd. It makes no sense. Scripture is clear on this in places like Hebrews 10, where we read about not neglecting to gather together. But the call in our lives is a lot more than just gathering. It's a lot more than just Sunday. A a more compelling argument is how much of Scripture is dedicated to how we are to live out our faith together, right? So much is about how we live together, not just gathering on Sunday, but doing life. Our togetherness is assumed throughout the pages of Scripture, from beginning to end. And the process of sanctification, the work of God through the Holy Spirit in the church is shaping us into the image of Christ. Not you, but shaping us as a community. As we read in Ephesians 3.10, Paul says, God created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. That's huge. Right? Think about that. Our existence together, the way we live and love and serve and care for one another, should proclaim to the whole cosmos the manifold wisdom of God. This has always been God's plan. It's not about a person, but a people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. As Jesus prays in John 17, 22 and 23, he says, The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they, right, us, the church, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. That's what Jesus prayed for us. Let that sink in. Jesus 
came to save us and unite us so that our unity, our oneness points people to the love of God, to the glory of God. So when we choose to keep the community of God's people at a distance, when we choose to isolate or avoid investing in the lives of other believers, we, we choose to go against the very reason Jesus came, against his prayer for us to the Father. And there are plenty more verses that make this point, but if Jesus is praying for this to the Father for us, I don't think we really need to try and make the case any clearer. Gospel-centered worship will always lead to gospel-centered engagement in community. But it's really easy to agree with this as a theological idea, right? That's important. We, we need to believe it, but that's really the easy part. The hard part is actually living it out. And living out this call to gospel-centered community is hard because of something I like to call people. You've met them. People are hard. Even Christian people are hard. Some of you are hard, right? I was going to ask to raise your hand if you're hard, but I think it'd be better, yes, Isaiah, you are, if raise, raise your hand if the person next to you is hard sometimes. If you didn't raise your hand, you're a liar. Or you don't know the person next to you. I guess that's the other option. You should have raised your hand anyway. Right? Ask your spouse. Ask your family. God has united a bunch of sinful people still battling sin in their flesh, still impacted by the allure of this world, along with our pride and shame and fear and greed, which is why it's tempting for us to try and avoid community or to keep all of our engagements at surface level, keeping that wall of protection so that people don't see how we really struggle or the doubts we carry with us, trying to shield ourselves from the perceived shame of our imperfection. Or another route that's common is to just gather around people who look and act and talk just like us. People the same age, people with the same hobbies or temperaments, or maybe the same culture or race. Because commonalities are the low-hanging fruit of community. Gathering around people who simply affirm what we already like and think and enjoy is easy. It comes with this sense of connection, but it never really challenges us to grow. When Paul talked about the church proclaiming the manifold wisdom of God in Ephesians 3, he was talking about a church that was unified in diversity. Unified in diversity, not clicky pockets of common interests or cultures, but a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, every personality type and every gifting, unified by the precious blood of Jesus. And this has all been made possible by God. Because we do share a commonality that overarches all of these lesser commonalities. It's something that all believers have in common. Something that spans all the worldly commonalities that we can so easily cling to. 
And Paul lays this out for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verses 14 and 15, he says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, right? We, as the church, have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so the basis for our relationships with one another as the covenant community of God comes down to this. This is what we have in common. We have all sinned. We have all rebelled against God. We are all guilty and we need a righteousness that goes beyond our own. And we have found this righteousness in Jesus Christ alone. And Christ now lives inside us, empowering us to love one another as he loved us. This is a commonality that spans age, race, hobbies, activities. Whether you're an every Sunday churchgoer or show up once a quarter, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, in all our acts of righteousness, were found wanting. And it is only by the righteousness of Christ that we are acceptable to God. With his life, death, and resurrection, he has redeemed us. He has purchased us from death. He has reconciled us to God. And so the commonality that we share is something that never changes. We are sinners in need of grace. And that grace has been extended to us in Jesus Christ. And this is the bedrock of our relationships inside this community. And when we collectively as a church embrace this reality, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, when we long to be controlled by the love of Christ, to walk in obedience to God, when we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised, the church becomes a city on a hill. It becomes a place where the world sees our love and longs to know the God that we serve, where they see our good deeds and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. As we talked about last week, we exist to bring glory to God and to make disciples. To worship God and draw people into worship. And the way we live out the gospel together is going to proclaim to the world the glory of our God. It's going to give them a glimpse of the coming kingdom and the love of Jesus Christ that has been offered to all who would believe. So flip over with me or scroll over with me to Romans chapter 12. Paul's going to describe for us the characteristics of a relationship that is rooted and established in the gospel. It's Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. He says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
So Paul begins here in verse 9 saying, let love be genuine. That is, let us be a people who love without hypocrisy. And this is important because hypocrisy is something that the church can very easily fall into if we're not careful. Because it's easy to learn Christian lingo and actions, to know what we're supposed to say and do, and to play the part really well without having any real affection for Jesus or affection for one another. It's easy to pretend like everything's all right, to create this external facade of nearness to God while the internal reality is that we are struggling and distant. That's called hypocrisy. And it's a failure to understand or embrace the gospel. If the the basis of our relationship as a community is that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, that we are all in need of grace, if that's the foundation upon which our relationships are built, then why should it surprise anyone that I'm lacking? It shouldn't surprise anyone that there are times when I struggle with sin. I I wish the title of pastor meant that you were impervious to sin, but I can assure you that's not the case, as can my wife. (laughs) The whole nature of our relationships with one another, the commonality upon which we have been drawn together as the people of God, is that I have rebelled against the God of the universe. I deserve condemnation. And it is only by his grace alone that I am found favorable in his sight. So why on earth would we pretend that we are more than we are? That we are better off than we really are? When the whole premise of this community is founded upon the fact that it is not about your righteousness or my righteousness, but Christ's righteousness on our behalf. Because the cross is evidence that God was well aware of your shortcomings and failures and how wicked you would be. And yet, he extended grace and mercy for those who would humble themselves before him. This is the truth from which gospel-centered community flows. Let love be genuine. And so... Gospel-centered relationships create an environment that is safe for people to be honest about where they are. It's neither seeing oneself as less or different or hiding your struggles, nor is it seeing yourself as better, looking down on others who you deem less. It's honest recognition that we have all fallen short. But through Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed. We are all sinners in need of grace. But that doesn't mean that this environment is warm and welcoming to ongoing unrepentant sin. Because it's not. We don't come together and confess so that we can revel in our sinfulness. But rather to be disgusted and broken by it to humble ourselves once again before the face of God and pray that we would walk in the power that he has provided for us. Because another danger in the church is is to try and take advantage of grace. To look at the grace of God and minimize our sinfulness by telling ourselves that God's going to forgive that anyway, so I'll just keep on doing it. 
What's the big deal? But Paul addresses this topic specifically in Romans 6. He says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer is a resounding no. Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And if we think that sin is not that big of a deal, if we minimize the devastating power of sin, then we don't know the gospel. It is sin that separated us from the presence of God, and it is for sin that Christ laid down his life. And if someone thinks that they can actively minimize sin, live in unrepentant sin, they do not know the gospel. They don't understand the gospel. Which leads us to the next line in Romans 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. So not only do gospel-centered relationships create a safe environment for us to struggle well, but they also make war against sin. They abhor evil. They see it for the destructive reality it is and fight with the power of Christ against it. And this isn't just a personal endeavor. There is a communal, a relational element to abhorring evil. God united us in Christ with all our unique gifts and struggles, and it is through honesty and humility that we can shape and sharpen one another. Because there's not anyone in this room that doesn't struggle with sin. There isn't anyone in this room who doesn't struggle with doubt or fear or anxiety. But there are plenty of us who try and hide this at times, right? Who try and act as though everything's okay. That's hypocrisy. Pretending like things are better than they are and rejecting the blessing of being sharpened by others in this community. God gave us the community of believers. He surrounded us with people to travel this road alongside. Because when we share our struggles, it is both encouraging to us to be ministered to by others, and at the same time, it shows others that it's safe to be vulnerable. Right? We bless others when we let them into our lives. It's a blessing even when sometimes we need loving admonishment. Big word for telling us we're being a sinner. Right? In case you don't know that word. As we read in Proverbs 27, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So sometimes we need to share when we're struggling so that we can be wounded by someone who loves us. By someone willing to tell us that maybe our actions or our thoughts or our motivations are not in step with the gospel. That is gospel love. God graciously uses a community of imperfect people, united by the blood of Jesus, to navigate the struggles of this life. And my prayer is that we would be willing to love one another enough to both give and receive loving admonishment. Because it is the grace of God in the community. 
So let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. So we're not just hating evil. We're not just looking for sin and blind spots in people's lives, but we are encouraging one another, urging one another to hold fast to what is good. And this is so simple and powerful. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I love this verse. We talk about it all the time. This, this word consider means to think deeply, to dwell upon. It's this call to think deeply about others, to dwell on others, to consider how you might encourage those you interact with this week, how you might stir them up, how you might push them towards gospel-centered love. It's a beautiful picture of the church at work. As we read in Proverbs 10, verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. That's pretty awesome. Are you pouring life into others with your words? Are you stirring up and encouraging others? Does spending time with you draw people closer to Jesus? Is your mouth a fountain of life or a fountain of something else? Do your words build up or do they tear down? Do they lead to life or do they lead to death? Teens, come on. Because gossip, slander, coarse joking, they lead to death. And they will destroy a community. Not only that, they're typically just a destructive and immature means of avoiding any sort of vulnerability or honesty. They are shallow and childish. But we have the ability to speak life, to encourage people in the gospel, and I pray that we would. It's as simple as sending a text to let someone know you're praying for them. Tell them something they do well. Encourage them to be bold in the gospel this week. Just to hear that someone else is thinking about you or praying for you during the week is incredibly encouraging. And if you struggle during the week, you're feeling disconnected or depressed or you feel like you're on an island, tell someone. Reach out to someone. Maybe start encouraging others. Maybe stop stewing in your own thoughts about yourself and look to the needs of others. You'll be amazed at the effect it will have on both your life and the lives of those who you engage. Gospel-centered relationships hold fast to what is good. And then in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So Paul isn't just telling us what to do, 
but he's calling us to feel something. He says that we should have a brotherly affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And while this sounds simple, if we're honest, it's not always easy. It's the people thing again, right? Because I'm guessing that there are people who love Jesus that get on your nerves. Amen? Who annoy you, who frustrate you. Possibly someone in this room. Might be me. I'm sorry. So what do we do with that? How do we love one another with a brotherly affection? And this is really where the gospel speaks into what it means to be the people of God. It's the litmus test of our understanding of the gospel itself. Because as we already said, the foundation of our relationships inside this community, the commonality that brings us together and unites us, is the reality that God loved us despite our imperfection and sin. And it is this truth which paves the way and compels us to pursue loving those who are harder for us. Because at the end of the day, if left to ourselves, we would just hang out with a bunch of people who act and think and do the same things we do. But it is through the diversity of the community that the church grows strong. And it will take work. It will require effort. But if you start the simple task of praying for those people who are difficult for you, God will begin to soften your heart towards them. And he'll open up opportunities for you to engage them and know them and possibly even grow to love them with brotherly affection. And I can assure you that when you press into relationships that are outside of your normal box, they will bring life. Because God doesn't bring about transformation in spite of our diversity and uniqueness. It is a direct result of these things. This is exactly what God is doing in the church. He is creating a new kind of community, a new kingdom from every tribe and tongue and nation, every age and demographic, all united by the blood of Jesus. And it is hard at times. We have been conditioned from birth to gravitate to what is similar, to seek out those who will affirm whatever we think. But God is doing something that flies in the face of the wisdom of this world. And he has promised great joy in life when we walk in obedience to him. So I would encourage you this week to reach out to someone in this community that you don't know. It's outside of your normal sphere. Or if that's too big of a step, just start praying that God would change your dark heart. God will honor that prayer and you will be better off for it. And finally, Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. It's pretty self-explanatory. Just like we talked about a few weeks ago, if everyone is serving others, then everyone is being served. Makes sense. Meadow actually drew that out for me, and it was awesome. It sits on my desk. But just like that, in the same way, if everyone is showing honor, then everyone is being honored. These are the characteristics of God's kingdom. 
And I love this verse because I like to win. I'm super competitive. I like, just, I like to win anything. It doesn't matter what. I make the same breakfast every single day. And I have a system. And every day I'm trying to PR my breakfast. I'm trying to beat my time from the day before. It's just what I do. And it's super weird. And so when Cheryl asks, can I make you breakfast? I've started trying to say yes. But if I'm in the kitchen, I can't stand it. It takes like five times longer than the perfect system that I've created. And so that's on me. That's on me. I get it. But Paul's words resonate with me because he's basically saying, win something. It's like, outdo one another. Outdo them. Strive to out-honor one another. Rather than striving with all your might to build up yourself, to secure your position of honor, he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in humbling yourself and looking to the needs of others and doing everything you can to encourage, uplift, and honor your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's like a flashback to Hebrews 10. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is gospel-centered community. It's a community that longs to glorify God, fueled by gospel-centered worship, united and empowered by the grace that we have experienced through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and set free to pour out our lives for one another, to follow Christ in laying down our lives for one another so that God might be glorified. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this community. Thank you for the love that is so evident in the lives of the people in this room. And I pray that you would grow this love more and more. God, that you would break down strongholds of pride and shame so that we might experience your love more fully by your spirit through this community. Let us never forget that what unites us as your people is the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. We were all enemies, but you have made us sons and daughters through Jesus to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. Praise God Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's Word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamlin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org.